And we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just get their attention in some way, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your convenience. And, uh, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These are the apostles. And these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, that is, Jesus' brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120. And he said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. In verses 18 and 19, Luke, who writes this by the Spirit of God, he fills in the blanks because not everybody, uh, certainly the Gentile world, didn't understand the story yet about Judas. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. Uh, he's a, Luke was a medical doctor, so he elaborates a little bit uh, on the death of, uh, of Judas, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. And then Peter now referring to the passages that he's quoting for the replacement of Judas, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and no one, and let no one live in it. And then a second psalm, let another take his office. And therefore, of, those, uh, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become, uh, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for every jot, every tittle. And more than that, we thank you for the thoughts and the precepts that are behind your word, the things that this passage is intended to teach us as your children and as your disciples. And Lord, we know you're always speaking, and we want to be able to hear your voice. And so we pray that you would speak to us through this passage. Why is it in the Bible? What does it have to do with our lives? We pray that you would make that clear to us today, and we pray that you would give us hearts and a spirit and an ability to be able to hear your voice personally into our lives today. We ask for that work of your spirit, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There's the old uh, joke, and I don't tell jokes very often because there's a lot, I, don't know, I don't know a lot of jokes and I don't like a lot of them, but the ones I do like, I do like. And there's the old joke about the farmer and the talking frog. And one day there was this elderly farmer, and he's out walking through his orchard, and he's, uh, <coughs> excuse me, inspecting his irrigation canals, And as he's doing so, he sees this frog, which to his great surprise starts talking to him. And the frog declared, kiss me and I will turn into a beautiful princess. And the farmer proceeded over to the frog, picked it up and put the frog in his pocket. And the frog again made the offer to the old farmer, kiss me and I'll turn into a beautiful princess. 
To which the old man replied, at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. <laughs> if you don't think that's funny, it's just because you're too young to <laughs> understand yet. Sometimes people can surprise us with what they do, with the choices that are presented to them. And sometimes even God can surprise us by the choices that He makes, by what He does with the choices that we offer to Him. The context of our passage is that Jesus has ascended now into heaven from the Mount of Olives 40 days after His resurrection. And prior to His ascension into heaven, Jesus instructed, indeed commanded the apostles and the disciples not to depart, verse 4, from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, referring to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so following Jesus' ascension into heaven, they obediently were told there, made their way the short distance to Jerusalem, and they congregated in some upper room that was doubtless familiar to all of them. The apostles were there. They're named there in verse 13, as we noted. Joining the apostles were a number of women, we're told in verse 14. Interestingly, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present in that upper room. And here she is. This is the first and only mention of her. She will never be mentioned again in the book of Acts or further on into church history within the book of Acts or the epistles. But here is this beautiful, sweet saint the mother, the, the vessel chosen by God the Father to bring our Savior into the world, and yet she's in that upper room, obedient to the command of her Son, eager to receive this gift of the Father, this promise of the Father called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. She needed that baptism with the Holy Spirit as much as any of us need it in order to live a life that is a witness to the Lord. And then there we're told in verse 14 that Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, were also present. And this is significant. And uh, these are the younger brothers, half-brothers, as I say, of, of uh, Jesus, the uh, children following Jesus' birth that were born to Joseph and Mary and uh, conceived in birth after his virgin birth. And there's no, really no biblical support at all for the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, con the contrary, many, many passages in the Bible speak of the fact that Jesus had these brothers and had these sisters, that they bore children, Joseph and Mary did, following Jesus' birth. What is interesting about their names being mentioned here or mention being made of them and the reason it's interesting and really very beautiful to find them there is because early in Jesus' ministry, they were among probably the most painful of the rejectors of Jesus. It's one thing to be rejected as the Messiah, as the Son of God, by the world, by the religious leaders, but Jesus was rejected even by His own brothers throughout His uh, public ministry. And uh, even, they were even hostile toward him, even as the cross approach that he was going to die upon. But there was something about his death and his burial and his resurrection that uh, caused something to occur within them, that they realized that all of his claims were true, and they too became disciples and followers of their older brother, of Jesus himself. They were won over by those three great facts in human history the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, several of these brothers would become very significant leaders in the early church. James, who was the author of the book of James in the New Testament, was a half-brother of Jesus and a very significant leader in the early church. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book of Jude as well. Altogether, we're told, they totaled 120 persons. The activity that they gave themselves to while they're waiting for this baptism with the Holy Spirit, we're told in verse 14, was they gave themselves to prayer and supplications. They united together in seeking God, praying for this great event in church history to occur in their lives. They had no idea that they would be baptized when they would be baptized, and they had no idea that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
on the day of Pentecost. None of them looked and said, okay, it's been 40 days since Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's 10 days now until the Feast of Pentecost. The logical conclusion is that this baptism with the Holy Spirit will occur as a fulfillment of this particular feast. None of that is going on in their minds. They're not putting these things together at all the way that we can and looking back on the event. They're just knowing any moment this promise of the Father is going to happen in our lives because Jesus said it would and told us not to leave the city until it occurred. And so there they are praying and waiting for this great event to occur in their life, and they gave themselves to prayer. Well, so far, so good. But then we're told that at some point during the ten days, the apostle Peter, he stood up among the group, and he proposed that they gave, give themselves to choosing another apostle to replace Judas Iscariot who had betrayed Jesus and then ultimately committed suicide by hanging himself. And so Peter lays out his biblical case for replacing Judas there in verse 20, and he quotes from two psalms of King David, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and his understanding that the vacancy among the twelve apostles caused by Judas as a betrayal would ultimately be filled by God, absolutely solid. He's on solid ground as far as that goes. But his plan starts to get a little sketchy, at least in my opinion, after that. And then in verses 21 to 26, he laid out a course of action now for helping God to identify Judas's replacement, and he lays out the criteria for who would qualify to be Judas's replacement as an apostle in verses 21 and 22, and the criteria was twofold. First, any candidate that would be considered would, first of all, have to have accompanied the disciples during the three and a half years of Jesus's public ministry and have done so from the baptism of John the Baptist with Jesus all the way through his ministry to his ascension. The second requirement that Peter spoke of here was that this person would have to then also be an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. And of the 120 people that are gathered together in that room, only two men, other than the apostles, uh, met those requirements, and each of them met the requirements equally. Joseph, we're told, named Barsabbas, uh, uh, who is surnamed Justice, and then Matthias. And so they prayed, they asked God to reveal his choice between the two of them, and they further determined that God was to reveal his will to them by the casting of lots. And so what would have happened in, the, in those days, and certainly under the old covenant, you would take probably a pottery jar with a narrow opening in the top of it. You'd take two rocks because there are two candidates here. You would write each one's name on a different rock, put it inside of the jar, and then somebody would maybe put their hand in it and after, after shaking the jar, pull out one name. Or sometimes they would just shake the jar until one stone came out and then this was uh, God's choice. And it was a legitimate means of determining the will of God in the Old Testament. In addition to the priests using the Urim and the Thummim, God would guide the lot under the Old Covenant in order to uh, direct His people. And so uh, they cast the lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this passage is one in which Bible students are divided over whether what Peter did here was of the Lord and that Matthias really did become the twelfth apostle to take the place of Judas or whether what Peter did here was not of God at all, but that this was the product of Peter's um, impulsiveness, his self-will, his impatience. Remember, he isn't baptized with the Holy Spirit yet. The Spirit is in him, but uh, the Spirit is not on him yet. And so people have varying opinions and a couple of different ways at looking what Peter does here. Personally, and that's not a litmus test for spirituality or uh, anything. But 
I personally would like nothing more than to look at this and say, this that Peter has done here was completely of the Lord, and uh, this was a legitimate way of determining how God was going to f- replace the, the 12th apostle here, replacing Judas. But the problem is there's so many obstacles that it makes me hard, uh, makes it hard for me to be able to do that. And I certainly don't want to criticize, and certainly not harshly, the apostle uh, Peter, and I'll be the first to apologize to him in heaven if I'm completely wrong in all of this, but I'm not alone in, in holding the view. And I think that it's important that we really examine these actions carefully in order to determine whether what is before us has been put into the Bible as a positive example for how to conduct ourselves when we're facing a major decision in our life, or whether this has been included in the biblical record uh, for our learning as a mistake in how to determine the will of God. Now, some of you might be losing heart at this particular point, thinking, oh, my, this is going to be more technical than I'm interested in being a part of. We will get to a point of application. It does have application related to our lives, so keep hope alive in your heart. The very first problem with Peter's actions, at least in my eyes here, is that they violate Jesus' very simple very clear commandment given in verse 4. And Jesus told the uh, the disciples, told the apostles especially, that they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was the only agenda that Jesus gave them for the period of waiting, waiting until the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the only agenda. That's all that Jesus revealed that he wanted them to do. Jesus did not instruct them to go to Jerusalem, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and if you have any time on your hands, maybe could you knock out replacing uh, the 12th apostle for me because of the vacancy that's been filled by uh, Judas. Clearly, the next great event in church history was to be the promise of the Father to be given to them on the day of Pentecost, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The next great event in church history was not to be the replacing of Judas as an apostle. Second, there is no indication from the passage that Peter was divinely instructed to stand up and address the disciples about anything, nothing that tells us that. Third, and it's almost painful in some respects to read of the apostles. Here they are. They are the ministers of this new covenant. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are not yet baptized with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is inside of them and painful to watch them really casting lots in order to determine the will of God really on any matter let alone watching these apostles, these men who are are so great and are going to become so great, uh, determining something so important by the casting of lots. I think it's also significant, fourth, that Matthias is never again mentioned in the Bible, never again mentioned in the book of Acts. And I have no doubt that he was a good man. And tradition tells us that he became a missionary to Ethiopia, But as it relates to man's choice of him as an apostle, God appears to ignore him uh, completely in that capacity in moving forward in church history. Fifth, it seems to me that God himself clearly chose Saul of Tarsus or Paul of Tarsus to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle. Peter was right in knowing that God would Uh, replace Judas to come back to the number 12. Um, There was no doubt that that was going to occur on solid ground there. Where he got into slippery kind of territory is to try to determine who that person was and give God a choice between two men, which it appears God hadn't chosen either to take Judas's place. So we say, how do we know that God himself 
clearly chose the Apostle Paul to replace Judas. I think the Holy Spirit tells us that in His Word repeatedly, but I'll give you one example of it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And the book of Acts is filled with the ministry of Paul as an apostle. The book of Acts is chock full of the apostle Paul and his three missionary journeys. And the apostle Paul not only dominates the book of Acts, but he dominates the entire New Testament used by the Holy Spirit to write fully 13 of the epistles or letters found in the New Testament, 14 if you consider him to be the author of the book of Hebrews. No apostle is so dominant in the New Testament era as the apostle Paul. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the fact that the new Jerusalem is going to have 12 foundations, and each foundation is going to bear the name of one of the apostles. And it is inconceivable, at least to me, that Paul's name will not appear on one of those foundations, and that instead when we see the new heavens and that we see the new earth and we see the new Jerusalem, that Matthias' name will appear there instead. In Revelation chapter 5, when the 24 elders who represent doubtless 12 representatives from the Old Covenant, probably one each from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, some representative of each of those tribes, and then each of the 12 apostles, when these 24 elders fall down before the Lord Jesus and they worship Him in that heavenly scene immediately before the pouring out of the wrath of God in the great tribulation period, it's hard for me to believe that Peter or Paul will not be one of those 12 apostles representing the church age. Some people conclude that Paul cannot be numbered among the twelve because he fails to meet the criteria that Peter lays out in verses 21 and 22. That is that the candidate must have been present at the water baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist at the Jordan River all the way through to his ascension, and second, that he must also be an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. But I ask myself, in an honest search for understanding the passage here, where did that standard come from? Where did Peter get that criteria for testing the next apostle? And uh, whose authority, by whose authority does he lay that out as the criteria? And there are no verses that he cites to substantiate this criteria, and in fact, Peter himself failed the requirements, and that he was not physically present at Jesus' water baptism by the Apostle John. His brother came to him later and spoke to him of Jesus, and he became a disciple following that great uh, event. Subsequent to that event, he was not present there. Sixth, to read that such an important decision was determined by the casting of lots when Jesus repeatedly had spoken to the disciples of the fact that He would send His Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth is difficult to get excited about, that, that, God, that God truly did use the casting of lots to lead these apostles of the new covenant. But somebody says, well, they prayed. So, uh, doesn't that count for something? Well, prayer is always a good thing, and they did pray, but it's important to realize that not all prayers are created equal, are they? James wrote in his epistle, as the half-brother of Jesus, and he said, you have not because you ask not. And he didn't stop there. He went on and he said, you ask, talking about prayer, and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's possible to pray 
and then to pray for something wrongly, to pray amiss, to pray for something that isn't good for me, to pray for something, request something of God that I want for my own selfishness or for my own selfish ambition uh, or um, for my own pleasure, but it isn't a part of what God has for me. And God feels perfectly free to then disregard that prayer. Prayer that we praise, prayers that we pray amiss, the Lord feels free to disregard and not to answer in the way that we ask. How many of you are thankful for at least one prayer that you asked of God that He chose to completely ignore? Anybody have that in their life? I'm as thankful, or I'll just say, I'm almost as thankful for the prayers that He didn't answer in what I've asked Him for in the course of my Christian life as the ones that He did answer. And so I'm thankful that the Lord sifts these prayers of ours through His wisdom, and He gives us what is right and what is best for us. So not all prayers are equal. For instance, there are many kinds of prayer. One prayer is the informing uh, prayer. Here's the prayer that somebody comes to God and says, God, this is what I'm going to do today, and I just thought you ought to know that. Uh, there's no concern for God's will or checking in with Him or submitting to His will. The prayers are completely informative uh, toward the Lord. And then there's the prayers that are the sales job, where we try to sell God on our requests. Lord, if you give me that uh, Corvette, um, I will uh, drive people to church uh, one at a time uh, from my neighborhood. And uh, so we try to sell God on the virtues of answering this prayer that we're asking for. And sometimes there's then the informing God of this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm going to do, God, and then asking Him to bless it prayer. God, this is what I'm going to do today. These are my plans, and now I ask that you bless my plans, and that is what's ex exactly what's happening here, in my opinion, in the passage. And then there's the prayer that is the prayer that God can most often answer, and just the prayer of surrender, where, Lord, I, I can have my opinions about how I'd like to see this go right or left or up or down or how I'd like to see you answer this prayer, and so I let you know about that. But I really surrender to you and to your wisdom and to your heart of love for me and your plan for my life, and I ask that you do what you know is right in this situation. All those prayers are different, and they're not all of them are equal. And so prayer alone doesn't indicate that they were on solid ground. In the rest of the book of Acts from the day of Pentecost onward, we will never, ever see the early church resort to the casting of lots in order to discern the will of God. And so it makes me suspicious that the Holy Spirit was involved in this prior to that baptism with the Holy Spirit. Well, let's take a look at a couple of practical lessons from this incident before we close. And there are lessons to be learned here. You know, not everything in life do we learn uh, from watching people do what is right. Much of what we learn is we watch somebody handle something, a situation well, and we say, okay, I'm going to put that in the file so when I'm in that kind of a situation again, I'm going to do it well and do it that way. Many times what we learn is from kind of a negative example. We see somebody mishandle a situation. We say, okay, that didn't go that great. And uh, so I'm going to learn from, uh, use this as kind of a negative example of, of what I shouldn't do in that situation and file that away. Both ways are valuable in learning anything in life, but certainly learning in our relationship with the Lord and our service to the Lord as well. And so what can we learn from what is, in my opinion, Peter's mistakes here? This passage provides us, I think, with a much-needed warning to the naturally impatient person, the naturally impulsive uh, person among us, those who are the most like Peter. Peter's a great encouragement to me in the Bible, but he's very emotional, he's very impulsive, he's very headstrong, and certainly before the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit. So you have those who are in the body of Christ who are kind of type B people, and, um, and they're a little slower to move and a little more cautious and all these kind of things, and we praise the Lord for them. 
And, uh, but we're not talking about that kind of person here. We're talking about people who are movers. They are shakers. They are doers. And they live under the motto, do something, even if it's wrong. But let's do something here. And that kind of person, I think, like Peter here, so often can have trouble waiting, even when that waiting is on God. And somewhere in the course of things, Peter and people like this can get very uncomfortable with ten days of prayer without taking control of the situation. I can almost see Peter in the room. I don't know whether it's day four or day three or two or eight that this occurs. We don't know. But he's getting antsy here a little bit. We're not accomplishing anything. And I think we can wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and maybe knock out a couple of other things for God at the same time. And there are people that by nature are that way, and you know who you are. And I understand it perfectly. Now, Peter isn't the only one to have offered God two choices, both of them wrong. Uh, I've done it before. Where here they are, they're going to save God all of the trouble and all the bother of looking all across the entire vantage, you know, the whole horizon of the Jewish population and in picking the next apostle. They're going to give God a choice, but they're going to narrow it down for him all the way down uh, to two people. And so, God, here's your choice, and I have offered God uh, a choice like this in prayer in my Christian life, and both of them wrong. And again, I'm thankful that God disregards my choices that he gives him at times like that, and he feels free to do it. But sometimes we feel like that. Lord, uh, here, I see this very, very clearly. Anybody could see this clearly. There are only two forks in this road. There's only two ways that this can go. Uh, there's only two outcomes that really are, uh, look like you and are really a blessing here. And so you really have two choices here, Lord, two ways that you can go. So just tell me which of the two you want. And we can do that. Lord, here's uh, the two jobs that I want. These are the two places that I want to be placed for your glory in, in Modesto or in the surrounding area. And so you just show me which of these two jobs I'm going to have. And then sometimes we're shocked when he disregards both of them and then puts us in another place. Lord, these are the two uh, men that, uh, uh, that I look at, and it's between one of the two of them that is probably, you know, the best choice for me to be my husband or vice versa, to be a woman, to be my wife. And so often we can look and say, which of the two, Lord, do you uh, want me to say yes to and do you want me uh, to marry? And so these things are things that come across our path on a regular basis. And I think that even the greatest men and women of faith can find ourselves in offering God an option that he has no interest in choosing. I think the Old Testament equivalent of all of this is when Abraham offered to God uh, Ishmael, uh, this son of his that was the product of a carnal fleshly plan of his wife Sarah and himself. God had promised that between the two of them that they would have a son and when God waited ten years before, not ten days, but ten years before, uh, and still no son, they came up with the plan, you know, far earlier than that, that here is my, you know, handmaiden, Hagar, and you go into her, uh, Abraham, and then the child that comes out of that, that'll be our child. Obviously, God's having difficulty fulfilling this promise. And so we're, we'll come up with a, a plan for him. And they're just like, Abraham's the father of faith. So it means all of us are tempted in this way. We get impatient. The promise is there. We know he's going to do it, but he's taking so long to do it. And so we are then tempted to take it into our own hands and under our own control and move it along uh, for God. And most of us are familiar with the story. God did not accept Ishmael as the fulfillment of the promise that he had given to Abraham and Sarah to have a child, and God ultimately fulfilled his promise to them by giving them a son by the name of Isaac. And God always keeps his promises, but what we have to remember is that he will fill, fulfill them his own way and in his own timing his own way and his own timing. 
And His way and His timing is always, always perfect. Peter was right in understanding that the Scriptures promised that Judas would be replaced by another apostle. Where he kind of slid sideways a little bit was in getting ahead of God and trying to help God out rather than just resting in God uh, to fulfill his promise in his own way and at the right time. I think a second lesson that we learn here is that we all understand that there would be no book of Acts apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of us as Christians understand that. But what is equally true but often overlooked is the fact that there would be no book of Acts apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that is intended to make us stop and examine our Christian lives, especially when we're wanting to experience Acts chapter 29 where we're looking and saying, I don't want to just read the book of Acts. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I don't want to just read this as a historical document, but I know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I want this to be what God does in and through my life in this hour in human history in which He has called me to be His disciple. And so the book of Here's this desire for the book of Acts to live it in our own day, through our own lives. And even those of us who are quick to ask the Lord on a daily basis for His power and fresh refilling with His Holy Spirit, it's important for us also to stop and to think about how many decisions in life are, our lives are being made under the direction of the Holy Spirit as opposed to impatience or self-will or impulsiveness on our part. Again, because there is no book of Acts apart from the Holy Spirit's power, but equally there is no book of Acts apart from the Holy Spirit's leading and from His wisdom. And the power of the Holy Spirit isn't given to us in order to empower us in a self-willed life but in order to live a life that the Holy Spirit is leading us into by His wisdom and His direction. I wouldn't want the baptism with the Holy Spirit if it was power for me to live a self-willed life. I already invested 30 years of my life in that before I became a Christian. I want that power of the Holy Spirit to now empower me, to lead me, and empower me to live the life that the Holy Spirit is leading me and leading us uh, into. And so that's, that's what the power, that, that's what the Holy Spirit is here for, both the power and the wisdom. And I think it would be easy to view kind of this section of the book of Acts, this section in Acts chapter 1 is like this odd event in the book, and to look at this and say, this is a very odd kind of thing that happens here. And almost everybody that reads it, no matter what position we take on it, would look at it and say, this is an odd kind of thing that we're reading uh, about here, or that it's the record of some kind of useless historical information. But it was recorded, I'm convinced, in order to communicate something to us concerning the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our need for His leading and His wisdom in our lives, to pray to God and say, yes, I want the power of Your Holy Spirit. I want that power. But just as earnestly, Father, I want to experience His leading and His wisdom in my life. And being directed by the Holy Spirit requires patience of us at times. There's a beautiful promise in this vein. Again, in the book of James, interestingly enough, <clears throat> James chapter 1, verse 5, and James wrote and he said, If any of you lacks wisdom, and who doesn't? He said, Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When we ask God for wisdom and direction concerning anything that's going on within our lives, that wisdom is always coming our way. 
Is there some fork in the road, some decision in your life that you need to make, and you've sought the Lord for wisdom? You have honored Him by saying, God, I ask that you direct me here in this decision. I need your wisdom here. Then James tells us that we can be confident that that wisdom is on its way. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. But the thing that James does, interestingly, in that promise is he doesn't give us the timetable. He says, it's coming. The answer to your prayer for wisdom is always coming. God will always answer that prayer. But he doesn't tell us when he will do it. And so, it requires patience. And the wisdom that we request from God, again, always coming, but it does require that patience. And God is so much more patient than I am, and I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. Your, patient, your wisdom is coming, God says to us this morning, but be patient because it's coming at just the right time. Allow me to close with just a couple of encouragements uh, to those of you who are waiting this morning for some promise of God to be fulfilled in your life, and you find yourself waiting on Him to fulfill some promise of His Word that He has given to you or given to you in some way by His Holy Spirit through prayer. And here you are waiting, and yet this morning you find yourself sorely tempted to take control of this situation Take it into your own hands for yourself. You've waited for God in prayer 10 days or 10 years or whatever it might be, but somehow in the last week or so, it's just like that's all I can do. I'm just going to take control of this situation for myself. Always realize, here's two things you need to understand in that temptation. Always realize that while you're waiting for God in faith to answer your prayer for wisdom, that God is working. He's working. While you're waiting, you're waiting in faith, but He is working. God has you waiting, but it doesn't mean that He's not working. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Isaiah that's especially helpful in this, and it basically declares that God is working while we are waiting. And that passage is Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, which declares, For since the beginning of the world men have not known nor heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. And then here it is, who acts for the one who waits for him. God is actively working on behalf of every single one of us who is waiting on him in some situation in our life. And so often, if you're like me, you can tend to think that time spent waiting, even waiting on God, is time that is being lost, time that is, is being wasted, but it never, ever is. And you need to hear this morning from the Lord that God is actively at work in your situation. Would you just say that into your own spirit, into your own heart? God is actively at work in my situation. He is not being idle at all concerning your circumstance. He's not unaware at all. And when the day comes in which He reveals what he has been doing all along on your behalf while you've been waiting, you're going to be amazed. You'll be amazed at why he overlooked the two choices that you gave him in order to do what it is that he's done. And that truth helps us to not only stay patient while we're waiting, but to be even further, to be expectant to say, what amazing thing is God up to in this situation? Because I know He's working here, and it's taken Him a while before this is unfolding to me, and it gives us that expectancy. 
And we see it over and over and over again in the Bible. We see it in Joseph's life and David's life in Paul's life and Peter's life and all the way through the Bible, and he's doing it in your life as well. The second encouragement that I would make to anyone who's being sorely tempted to take control of your situation, to get out of the control of the Holy Spirit and take charge of it uh, yourself this morning, is to realize that when God says no to our choices, it's only in order that he might do something far better. And no matter how perfect we think our plan is that we've laid out to God, how matter, no matter how perfect we lay it out to God and say, this is, it just, Lord, both you and I, we know there can't be a third option here. There can't be another way here. This is, this is the perfect way for this to unfold. And no matter how uh, perfect we think our plan or our timing is concerning some circumstance in our life, if the Lord appears to disregard our timing and our plan, it's only because he's up to something better for us. Something, it, sometimes it can be so hard for us to believe that any plan could be better than the one that we've envisioned or that we've offered to God, but when he ignores our choices, it's only because he has something better in mind for us. Again, the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait. Oh, brother, Therefore, the Lord will wait, Isaiah wrote, but he didn't stop there, that he may be gracious to you. When he makes us wait, it's only in order that he might be gracious to us. I'll tell you, I don't think that any church historian or any student of the Bible would argue with the fact that the Apostle Paul was worth the wait. And so is whatever God is up to in your life, and in your situation. And when God delays, it's only because he plans to outdo your best, always. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah wrote, on behalf of God, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you know, if that verse was read to me three times a day, it wouldn't be too often. That's how often I need to be reminded of that and God's working within our lives. And I think that these things, the fact that while we're waiting, God is working, and that when God disregards our plans and our requests, it's only to do something even greater than we could imagine. This is an important salve that God provides to us to apply to any disappointment that is in our hearts and painful disappointment <clears throat> in our hearts concerning God's dealing in our life this morning. Waiting on God in any situation is always worth the wait, and time will reveal it to be so. And so here this morning for someone, here you are, tempted to take control of your situation, tempted to make the decision that God hasn't given you clarity on. And if the truth were be no made known to anyone beyond God and yourself, you're tired of waiting, you're tired of praying, and maybe you've poured your heart out in this way, even to God on your way to church or in your time with the Lord this morning, and you ask the Lord to speak to you this morning concerning the issue. But here's a verse for you. Again, from the, <clears throat> the book, uh, from Psalm uh, 27. Wait, the Lord says, and the idea is wait in faith, Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Why would the Bible repeat its encouragement and exhortation to us to wait so many times through the Bible except that it is something that some of us have such a difficult time with? 
And waiting is one of the hardest things in the world for some of us. But God's choices are always worth the wait. You stay patient. No one loves you more than God loves you. No one is for you more than God is for you. He is up to good things, and good things are coming. He who did not spare his own son, Paul wrote to the Romans, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for his power and what he provides to us in that way in our lives on a daily basis. But we thank you, Lord, with a fresh appreciation in the light of your word this morning for the reminder that he is not merely a power source, but also to be the source of our wisdom and the direction in our life. And we thank you for the encouragement that is found in your word, Lord, continually, not only in individual verses, but in life after life after life that is recorded in your word, where you kept people waiting, but always in order to do something that was exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think. And I pray, and we pray this morning, that that word that that hope, Lord, that that encouragement to patience where it is needed, Lord, in an individual life and in individual spirits in this room today, that you would just minister that great truth and encouragement into the heart and into the mind of your sons and of your daughters. Bless, Lord. Minister, Lord. Bring perspective and hope, Lord, into hearts who are pained and sorely tempted to move from the place of waiting into taking charge of something that you have such wonderful control over and are doing something so marvelous but they just can't see it right now. Bless, Lord. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this lesson of the passage. And we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you're one of those people here this morning, there are going to be pastors.